Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Mary Mosqueda, practice leader for Locked & Company's global compensation consulting practice. With over two decades of experience in compensation, human resources, and work-life programs, she has been a key contributor in the strategic development and design of both public and private sector compensation, executive compensation, and total rewards programs. Mary is a partner of mine here at Lockton, and as her title suggests, leads our compensation practice out of the Midwest. She is an expert in all things compensation, executive compensation, and total rewards. And in this, we really get into the practical element of how companies set up and manage and communicate their compensation practices. We get into the weeds here. This is a little more technical than some of the other episodes that we've done, but I think if you are managing a company, if you are thinking about how you are compensating your people and and why you're offering the compensation that you're offering, I think there's something in here that will really help you. So I hope you enjoy my conversation. Here is Mary Mosqueda. And we are live. Mary, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm excited to dive into this with you. Obviously, you and I work together at Lockton. We've shared some clients over the years. We've even presented together a couple times. And so uh, it'll be fun to dive into the topic today and, and get into compensation. Starting off, I guess it'd be good if you could just pitch who you are and like what, what your practice is and, and what you do on a day-to-day basis. Sure, absolutely. So I lead Lockton's compensation and total rewards practice been with Lockton for 13 years and doing this for a little over 20 years. So, and started as a compensation practice that was really full service. So base pay, executive comp, variable comp, sales commission plans, performance management. And then we morphed into, we can't just be selling compensation and setting up one one piece of the puzzle. We have to really help our clients look at the total package. So we morphed into this total rewards practice that really looks at How do you pull the right package in place for your population at the right cost? So optimizing that total rewards value. But you almost have to start with each of those pieces separately to bring them all together. So the compensation practice really is just made up of that piece of the puzzle. When a client comes to you and says, hey, we need help, generally they already have a compensation program in place, right? Absolutely. They normally they have some way of paying people, yeah. whether it be looked on salary.com or or here's what we know our competitors are making. But we, you know, but putting a formal program in place can sometimes be a little tricky. So let's say the company started as a small company and grew, and now they're coming for some more help. Like, do you find that those companies generally 
had some sort of philosophy in the beginning or it's kind of all patchwork and then you need to help them grow it up or like, like what does that work look like? So depending on where the organization is, and that's a great point, you know, startups growing. So are you in growth mode? Are you in transformation mode? Um, Are you in stability mode? And all of that's going to look a little bit different. The compensation plan will look different, but we generally would say, what is the compensation philosophy? Can you articulate that? Because a lot of times we'll hear, well, yeah, yeah, we have a philosophy, we have a strategy. And then when we say, great, let's talk through that. There's some pieces that might be missing. So we always say, let's take a step back and really look at your compensation philosophy and strategy. Um, And what that means is who do you compare yourself against? Who are your peers? Um, What's the mix of pay base versus variable versus long-term? Where do you want to anchor pay? So we sort of ask them to take a step back as a starting point of of really, let's let's lay out the framework of, of where you are currently and where you want to be. And and so it sounds like a lot of that then is based on benchmarks. Yes. So in order to identify where you want to be in the market, you have to know the market, right? So the next step in that process is really to look, do you have job descriptions that we can take a look at? Because when we pull market data, we want to make an apples to apples comparison. So titles are very deceiving in the marketplace. So we'll review job descriptions and then look at the market data the benchmark data could be published survey sources that we use to identify the 25th, 50th, and 75th percentiles for base pay, total cash, target incentive. And then we can say, all right, where did you want to anchor pay? Here's where you stand against the market. Did you know that you were above the 50th percentile for base pay, but below on variable comp? And is that really your strategy? Is that what you wanted? And so the market data is a great place to say, all right, here's where we compare to market. Is that really where we want to be? So let's define a couple terms too. So base pay versus variable compensation. Sure. So base pay is really just what's in your base salary, your, your hourly paycheck. Your, um, if you're an hourly employee, it's your annual salary. That's what you get for coming in and doing your job on a day-to-day basis. Variable comp could be some sort of bonus arrangement, formal incentive plan. And that really is set up a variety of different ways. The best way that plan is designed is if it's more formulaic and less discretionary, but it's for doing something over and above what you normally do in your day-to-day job. So it could be you know, setting up formal metrics. It could be discretionary, although those aren't the best plans, but still just having something to say, you've gone above and beyond, here's an additional amount of money. And when you say discretionary, you're referring to the manager's ability to say, yes, this person earned a bonus or no, they didn't. And even potentially to set the amount that that person's going to get. So it's, it's up to the manager's discretion versus formulaic, which is there's some specific formula that they have to hit, you know, some certain metrics that they have to hit in their performance and then they either get the bonus or they don't based on that. And there's no discretion involved. That's correct. Okay. And we always say there should be a quid pro quo. If I do this, I'm going to get that. And I understand it. We also say there should be line of sight, right? So I understand the metric that's in front of me and I have the ability to achieve that metric. I can fall short of it. I can hit it or I can achieve it or exceed it. 
but I have the ability to do that. And those seem to be the best plans for our clients because it drives behavior. If you're not really sure why you got an incentive or why you got an additional paycheck at the end of the year, that plan is not driving the right behavior to hit the financial metrics of the organization. Yeah, I've heard the statement that systems always work. You know, the the outcome that you get is the exact outcome that you deserve based on how the system is set up. And so, you know, if you're getting to the end of the year and your people aren't performing the way that you want them to perform, it's not that the system's broken. It's that the system is working exactly as it should work based on how you've set up the system. So you need to go back and set up the system differently to try to get a different outcome. That's absolutely right. And the more formulaic, the more detail in the plan, the more you can communicate the plan to the employee, um, the more line of sight they have, the change in the behavior is what you're looking for. So let's talk about that a little bit too. When would somebody want to put in variable comp versus just making those responsibilities part of somebody's job description and paying a salary? So variable, that's an excellent question because variable comp plans are not necessarily designed for everyone in the organization. So if you think about a receptionist or or um, somebody in the mailroom or, or somebody that's doing an administrative role, do they really have line of sight over the EBITDA or the revenue growth or the margin of the organization? Not really. And they don't know how they impact that. So participation in a plan that's designed with financial metrics really should only go down to the people that actually can maintain that performance based on what they're doing on a day-to-day basis, that they have direct line of sight over that. Not to say that the receptionist or administrative folks can't be in a plan, their plan just might be designed differently. In other words, they might be in a bonus pool that says you're going to get X percent if the organization hits their EBITDA number or exceeds their revenue target or whatever that financial metric is. We want everybody to play in the game. We just think that a true incentive or variable plan that is set with financial metrics that I can achieve should be, those folks should be part of that plan and only those folks. So typically it goes down to a key contributor level. And that's when you know you should have an incentive plan in place is that you have people that can move the needle for the financial metrics of the organization. Yeah. And I guess that's an interesting description or or difference that I hadn't thought of is, you know, you can have a bonus or a revenue share where the company performs well and you want to take care of your people. And then there's also more of a performance-based variable compensation program. Exactly. So in other words, we might design plans that say, all right, there's going to be a corporate metric, there's going to be a division metric, and there's going to be an individual metric. And those might be weighted differently based on my where I am in the organization. So if I'm higher up in the organization, I'm obviously going to have more control over department, division, and or corporate EBITDA. The lower down I'm in the organization, the more direct line of sight I'm going to have over my individual goal, then maybe the department goal, then the company goal, the corporate goal. And and what are best practices that you've seen as far as communicating those variable plans? Because you mentioned communication being important. And I mean, I just know communication is everything when it comes to leadership and incentives and, and behavior management. So what is what are the best practices in communication? 
Yeah. So communication in general for salary management, that could be variable comp, that could be your general workforce-based salary compensation, executive comp. Communication is very key. So we tell our clients for variable comp plans, the best thing to do from a communication standpoint is to develop a plan document that outlines the plan very succinctly, that includes sample calculations, sample payouts. So I can see if I do this, this is what I could get. Maybe even developing an award calculator for the employee to kind of play around with to do their own what-if scenarios. And then communicating the achievement of those results often. So quarterly, even though the payout might not be until an, an annual result, Quarterly giving folks what the achievement has been on a quarterly basis is also very key in communicating those plans. And how do you set the limits? It's nice to want to bonus people, but you have to have the money there. And so, you know, who are you working with and how are you setting those limits to know that they're the right limits, that they can sustain growth, and that you're not going to put your company in an adverse position? Right, right. So we develop what we call um, self-funded plans. So we want the plan to pay for itself, technically. And so what that means is conducting a lot of financial modeling, right? So when we develop the plan design and the plan concepts, they look great on paper, but you have to plug the numbers in. And once you plug the numbers in, you have to do the financial modeling to determine what is that, we call it a stakeholder safeguard. What is that level below which all bets are off. We have to keep the lights on. So we can't hit, if we don't achieve X percent of our EBITDA number, there will be no payouts. Or we call or you can call that a threshold. So what's that threshold? And to determine that threshold is really dependent upon the financial modeling of the financials of the organization. So we do trending over a two or three year period. We look at what the future what they're looking at from a future state perspective. And I would say 90% of our clients use EBITDA as their financial metric. Some of our sales folks will use revenue or revenue growth, but I would say about 90% use EBITDA. And so what level of EBITDA do we want to achieve where we can then make a payout to the organization based on the, the new incentive plan? So you're, you're always putting some sort of safeguard in there f- for underperformance. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We would want to make sure that the company can keep the lights on and the doors open. And and um, so, so a true incentive plan, a true variable compensation plan driven by metrics, in some cases may not pay out. So we don't want employees to think it's an entitlement every year. Well, I got it last year and I got it the last five years, so I'm going to get it the next five years. That's not a true incentive plan. A true incentive plan is driven by what are the metrics of the organization Here's, here are the numbers we have to hit. And if we hit these numbers, there will be payouts. How do you do that? How do you keep people, when you, when you do pay out, right? You say you pay out four or five years in a row. How do you keep them from feeling like it's now something that they're owed? Because it, that's something that's not just a comp thing. You know, that translates into a lot of other elements of business where you're rewarding people for something or you're providing something for them. And as the executive team, you're, you think you're doing this great thing and it's this, it's discretionary and, you know, isn't this nice? 
but then they start to feel like, oh no, this is now what's owed to us for working here. So how do you see employers keep that balance? That goes back to plan design. That's why it is so important to have a design that you can show people is driven by the financials of the organization. In other words, if we don't hit the financial, there will be no payout. And so it's that communication and the plan design. So for example, if you have, we have clients where there's a discretionary payout. I hand you a check at the end of the year and you say, thank you, but you have no clue what you did to get that. That to us is a discretionary plan that's not really driving the behavior. You're not getting the bang for your buck there. You're just being nice to people. Well, which is fine. It's okay to be nice to people. I don't want that to sound like that's not a, a good reason. I think most CFOs are really, you know, anxious about obviously the money that's coming in and the, and the numbers and they're, they're always accruing something on the books. So there's always maybe going to be a pot of money. It may not be as big as last year or, and the way they distribute it is like peanut butter. They say, all right, well, we didn't do as well as we did last year, but everybody's got to get a payout. So we'll just spread it out and everybody gets it. That's not driving behavior. And that's not telling me what I did to get that payout. So we tell our clients it's okay, like I said earlier, to have a group of people that's on a, quote, bonus pool that will share in the wealth if the company does well. Again, how you communicate that, there could be a payout this year, there could not be a payout. It's all depends. So it's all in that communication and even more so in how you're designing the plan to be driven by the financials of the organization and how you communicate those financials. Hey, team, we're, we had a great quarter you know, it's looking like we're going to do at least hit our threshold this year, you know, communicating those types of things along the way, as opposed to waiting to the end of the year to say, oh, we had a great year. Or we didn't have a great year. And that seems easy when you're having a great year. The hard part becomes how do you lead when you're not having a great year? And I guess if I'm playing devil's advocate or if I'm putting myself in a client's shoes, one of the things that I might be worried about is we have a bad year. And you're telling us that we can't pay all of our people who have been working hard and that, you know, because they haven't hit their metrics and that's going to feel really bad. And we need everybody's morale up to turn the ship around. And I'm afraid that people are going to leave. Do you see that type of exodus when companies do stick to that during bad times? Or do you think that that's an overblown fear? Well, there's apples and oranges going on here. Okay. <laughs> and I say that because performance management is, is something that, that is accrued. Say it's a 3% accrual, right? And it's a 3% pool of money. And if I want to keep my superstars, I'm going to pay them a little more than I'm going to pay folks that are on a performance improvement plan. So instead of spreading that 3% equally, we're saying somebody could get 5% and somebody could get 2%. So you may not hit your variable compensation plan, but you're still going to get, I've already carved out a 3% merit pool. So we're going to pay merit. We may not be able to pay all of our incentive compensation. Very few of our clients do so poorly that they can't pay something. So then it becomes, all right, we need to reassess the financials. We need to reassess the shortfalls that that we've had. Who are the folks that we really know have contributed this year toward those financials? 
And how do we carve out a pool of money for that? You bring up such an excellent point because what we always say to our clients is have a reservoir of a discretionary pool that you can then do if you can you can give to folks if you don't hit the financial number that you need to hit. So you don't see a mass exodus. If you're communicating on a quarterly basis what the results are, people will know things are not going well and they'll know what they need to do to help turn it around. Yeah, and I guess at that point it becomes leadership, right? Your 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 compensation program can only do so much. It it becomes leadership. How are you communicating? How are you setting a vision for the turnaround? You know, how are you continuing to motivate them in ways that are not cash compensation? Exactly. And it's not all about cash, right? There's lots of other things that motivate people. So, you know, maybe adding an extra day in their PTO that year. We can't give out the full bonus program or incentive compensation, or we have a student loan repayment plan that we're going to incorporate, or we're going to implement a new employee discount program for certain high dollar discount uh, items. So there's a lot of different things you can do outside of comp alone. So uh, that's a good question. And one I was thinking of asking anyway, so I'll just ask it now, which is what can't a compensation program do for an employer? Like what, what can it do and what can't it do? So here's what we say. We say that typically what it takes to get people into an organization is your comp plan, your benefit plan, your retirement plan, but mostly what you're going to pay me is really the reason I'm coming to the organization, that along with the opportunity, the growth and development I might have in this opportunity, how I can grow within the organization. But first and foremost, to get somebody in the company, it's usually compensation. To keep people in an organization, it is not usually compensation. It's management connectivity, how connected I am to my manager, how much they understand my my personal needs, especially during COVID. I have kids at home now that I'm tutoring and I'm working full-time and understanding that the challenges I'm dealing with are important to me. It's the growth and development I have. So career leveling, do they have a career level path for me? I can go from level one to level two to level three, and I know what I need to do to get to that level. Those are the things that motivate and keep people in an organization. So while you you may think there's a mass exodus because I didn't get my incentive plan, if all of those other things are in place, management, connectivity, growth and development, all that, you really shouldn't see systemic turnover. You should you should be able to sustain that through all the other things that you're being offered. So then let's go back to the variable comp, right? It's a performance-based variable compensation. I think there's a perception, maybe I'm wrong, that you use that as a motivator, right? To to motivate people to go out and do more and and build the business more. But it part of my brain wonders if it's not necessarily a motivator as it is just a an aligner. Like it just aligns the behavior so that people know the things they need to focus on and then can do them. But the motivator seems to be all the other stuff you just mentioned. Well, it depends on how where you are in the organization, right? The higher up you are in the organization, you're going to be more motivated by that incentive plan because you have control over that. I have a line of sight over those financial metrics. The lower down you are in an organization and the less line of sight I have, 
it's going to be all those other things that are more motivating to me. My paid time off, my parental leave, because I might get a check at the end of the year because we hit our number, but I really don't know what I did to get that. But I do, I do like the fact that you have a, a nice robust parental leave program because I'm a millennial or I really like the fact that I have a student loan repayment program in place because I'm a Gen Z. So it really, some of those other things are going to be a little more motivating the lower down you are in the organization. Yeah. It makes me think of Daniel Pink's book, Drive. And for anyone who hasn't read it and doesn't want to invest in the whole book, there's a great, I think as you call it an infographic online where it's sort of a 10 minute presentation that he gave on the topic and they animate it. But, but essentially it talks about how they did a bunch of experiments where they compensated people differently and they tracked performance. And they found that the, if you paid people more, that your performance would increase for a short period of time and then would actually drop off below the level of your original performance. And what actually created motivation was purpose mastery and autonomy. So do you have purpose behind the work? Do you believe in it? Does it connect with something intrinsic in you? Mastery, are you mastering your craft, right? So is the business developing you? And then autonomy, do you have enough autonomy to to go do the job the way that you want to do it? And that those three things are what keep people motivated, not necessarily the money. But like, to your point, it was like, I mean, it totally reinforced what you said, which is money's the table stakes. Money's what gets somebody to the table. It's what makes sure that they can live the, the life they need to, and they don't have to go somewhere else to live that life. But then as a motivator, it's all these other things. Exactly. So, so what we've seen is similar to that because we, we would say how connected I am in the organization. Do I have the growth and development, the mastery piece? Am I able to make my own decisions and call my own, make my own judgment calls for certain things? Giving people that can sometimes mean more than giving them a dollar more in their paycheck. Have you seen companies get that wrong? Uh, lots of companies get that wrong. <laughs> and what are the what are the stories? I mean, do you have any stories of that or like examples of what then happens when they get it wrong? So, so I often hear from clients because we're a comp practice, and they often don't even know that we have a total rewards practice. But they come to us because they say. We're losing our manufacturing folks and they're leaving for 10 cents more down the road. And we know it's comp, we know we just don't have the right comp plan in place. And while I'd love to say that's true, I always take a step back and I say, well, tell me more. What's, what's going on? Tell me about the management, the growth and development opportunities, the pay for progression that you might have for them. There's a lot more to it. So comp is just one piece of that puzzle. And we go in and we find out it's not really comp that was driving people away. It was that they needed to train their managers to be more consistent in managing their folks, or they didn't have career levels in place and people didn't see the opportunities to grow. And so lots of organizations think it might be one thing and they find out it's another. One of the things we love to do is an employee survey where we can identify really what is going on. So you're the, often the management of the organization says, this is what we think is happening and we think it's comp-related. And while we'd love to say that's true because we're comp geeks at heart, that may not really be the case. So going in and actually, what is the employee perceived value of the entire program? And 
really what do your employees want and what is the population makeup? How many female versus male and how many millennials versus um, Gen X and, and, and boomers? So looking at the makeup of the population helps you get it right. So what does that survey look like? Like, are you just asking, like, do you like your compensation level or no, wh- how do you design that? We use what's called a conjoint analysis. So it's really a way to identify employee overall preference. Conjoint analyses are used a lot within marketing organizations to identify customer preference. Do you like creamy peanut butter over crunchy peanut butter? And so it helps kind of drive what's going on with with the customer buying power. We use that same technique in total rewards to say what's really driving employees to want to be here, want to work at the organization, and what's driving their buying power. And so we put together a tool where we're able to identify what they're doing currently against maybe things they're not doing, but maybe would would like to consider to see where there's trade-offs. Would they trade a portion of their retirement for a student loan repayment program? Would they want a lower target in their incentive comp because their incentive plan isn't very well written? Uh, would they want a lower target in their incentive program to get a higher merit adjustment at the end of the year? So it's tra- what would they trade off So that's really kind of what we're looking at. We also could do engagement surveys to really identify how connected they are to their managers and other things. But this tool really helps us identify what's driving employee perceived value. Yeah. And I I do think more and more it's important to look holistically at all of that stuff because, and not just the total reward stuff, but the the broader, are you connected to your manager? You know, how much purpose do you have in your job? Like that kind of stuff. Because one, there's more research coming out that like Daniel Pink's book that shows that those are the things that really motivate people. And then two, I I just think there's a growing need or maybe a growing realization about the importance of leadership. And one of the things that I've realized in doing this podcast now for roughly 30 episodes is just how foundational the the skills of leadership are to creating a high performance organization you know to to rallying people around a cause to getting them to do the things that they need to do it's like even if it's your minimum wage person you know who's doing a job that could be replaced tomorrow like you still need to lead that person and there there's still all those same leadership dynamics that go in place as you know, with a corporate sales team that's going out and bringing all the money in. So it's like just the the importance of those principles of leadership have really come through for me, at least. Like that's that's one of the big takeaways I've had in doing these conversations. Without a doubt. And I think that the leadership drives the culture, right? Oh, so 100%. the leader determine what that culture is going to be and what is of, of value to the organization. And are you more paternalistic? Or are you more driven by the financials of the organization and less concerned about the people? Are you, you know, so there's all kinds of, of, and I do think that's a great point that the leadership will drive how this is perceived by the employees. Yeah. You know, I, so just to riff on this for a little bit, I, I thought about this the other day as I was listening to somebody else's podcast on leadership. And it seems to me that everybody needs to be developing two skill sets. 
or I'll say at least two skill sets. There's the skill set of whatever your core competency is. And then there's the skill set of leadership. And I think even if you're not a leader, there are the skill of leadership is really just the skill of interacting with other people, of understanding what they need, being able to deliver it, being able to have conversations in a meaningful way that help you get to whatever outcome you're trying to get to. Even if you're not a leader, but you know, we're all trying to get make certain things happen. We're all trying to get certain places in the world. And so the more that we're all building our technical skill and then essentially building our people skill, the the better we'll all be at, at what we're trying to do. And I, you know, similar to what you're saying on the comp side and being like, when somebody comes in and says, well, our compensation's broken and we need to fix that to keep people. And you're like, well, maybe, but maybe not. You know, we similarly on the benefit side, I'll have people say, well, we really want to, we, we need to build up our culture. And so we want to put in a wellness program. And, you know, my answer is kind of the same. Well, maybe, but maybe not. And what is the problem we're trying to solve? And is it created because people just aren't coming together in a healthy way? And we need to create an environment where they can come together in a healthy way in a wellness program. Or is it that they're not showing up to a healthy environment created by bad leadership and bad managers, and we need to address that problem first. And, and you know, you can have the best wellness program in the world that's incenting people to live these healthy lives, but if they show up to a terrible work environment every day and they don't feel good about it, that's going to hinder their mental health, you know, way more than the benefits of the wellness program. And so I just, again, it's kind of a similar parallel where, and I'm riffing too long on this, but it's just the importance of leadership and creating that positive environment. Absolutely. Are you just trying to move your own agenda? Are you really listening and asking good questions? Are, yeah. I mean, employers at the leadership level need to spend more time asking good questions of the folks below them to know what to do next instead of moving their own agenda forward, right? So it's really collaborating with the managers below that senior level and really understanding the key contributors' issues and challenges. And then designing a plan that'll that'll map to all that. So let's talk about leadership uh, when it comes to compensation. How should leaders and managers be talking about compensation to their people? So we would say that they really they really need to. And I go back to transparency for a second, right? So how transparent do you really want to be within an organization? Um, I always ask that question first because. How you communicate and what you communicate is a cultural issue. Some some of our clients, everything's very close to the vest, and they don't. There's nothing is transparent, and others are really trying to move out of the black box in HR that's telling me what I should get paid versus a more transparent, open platform. So, what they should communicate is is a cultural question first and foremost. And really what we want to do is try to uncover that culture before we tell them how and what they should communicate. But there's things that that you could put together such as FAQs and communication guidelines or salary management guidelines. It really depends on what the organization wants to communicate. Some of our clients don't want to communicate salary ranges or they only want to communicate communicate the minimum of a grade or salary range, or they want to commute just the maximum. And so we try to understand why that is so that we can help them move more towards a more transparent approach, because we think that is really where 
society is going. And, and I always tell this joke about how, you know, I, I, this is going to date me and age me, but you never talked about your salary or how much you were paid, right? Back in the day, my daughter's 25 years old and she knows what all her friends are making. And it just, it, it's crazy to me because I, I think, wow, how do you know that? Oh, we all talk about it. Well, that's taboo. What do you mean that's taboo? That's not taboo. That's just what we, we all know. So if you're going to go that route and you know people are going to talk, then let's talk about what you should be communicating. And, and so it doesn't look like you're, you're hiding anything or, you're, you know, so I know that's a roundabout answer to the question. I can't be very specific because it really depends on the culture of the organization. Well, and I think that's the, the worry that people have is that if people, if they share too much, then people are going to talk and then they're going to realize that different people are making different amounts. And so is it fair to say then that you just have to assume that people are going to talk? I think as we, as the Gen Z's and the millennials come up through the organization, yes, they are going to talk more. That's just the nature of, of their, who they are. Therefore, to match that, I think you need to think about communication and what you're going to, you know, he, if you're going to develop an incentive plan, communicate the design of the plan, show calculations and sample payouts of the plan. There's all kinds of things that should be communicated in terms of who's eligible and who's not. And so communicate clearly on that. For base salary, why not communicate salary ranges? We have 15 grades and we have a minimum and a maximum for this grade and a minimum and a maximum for that grade. Because they're going to fall within that range. Can, can you? Can I just interrupt you for a second? Because I know we defined some terms at the beginning. I think it'd be good to define those too. So, like, can you talk about grades and ranges and how those apply? Like, what what they are and how a company uses them? Yeah. So, so once you go through the market data, you pull market, and let's say the strategy that you develop is you want to anchor pay at the fiftieth percentile of the market. So you collect that market data, and then you run a regression through the 50th percentile. The regression is just a line of best fit that goes through all those data points. And that tells us what the midpoint of those ranges should be. And then you develop minimums and maximums around those, those ranges. So it's the, the salary grades or the ranges are developed from the market data. And how many grades you have really depends on how many job titles you have and how large the organization is. And that's also a cultural piece of the puzzle, but a range just means there's a minimum entry to get into that job and there's a maximum level of that job. And every year the market goes up and so do the ranges. The ranges move up each year. But the minimum of a range really represents the minimum level of what it takes to perform that job. So brand new hire that has little or no experience, you would start at the minimum. Maybe somebody that could hit the ground running that knows that job from another organization maybe starts closer to the midpoint of the grade, midpoint representing complete satisfactory performance. So that's what I mean by ranges. So that's like that's like per job title, right? So somebody comes in and they're an account manager. There's a range that an, a more inexperienced account manager is going to make towards the bottom of the range. And the more experienced account manager who's maybe ready to be promoted makes at the top of the range. Exactly. Okay. That's right. And then there's a separate range. How many ranges you have depends on the type of job titles you have. So if you go from account administrator to account manager to account executive, those are three different ranges. Correct. Yeah. 
And you could have several jobs in the same grade. So you might have an accountant and you might have a facilities maintenance person and you might have a production supervisor all in the same grade. That just means the value of their jobs are all similar. And where you pay Sue Smith in the range is really dependent on her performance and her um, experience. So let's talk about where you pay Sue Smith in the range versus where you pay John Smith in the range. (laughs) So Uh, what what are the best practices for making sure that the way that you're actually executing these programs is fair and equitable? Right. So once you have your structure in place and you know that the accountant belongs in a grade five and the midpoint of grade five is $50,000, then you take John Smith, who's the accountant, and you say, all right, so John's been here five years. He, his performance scores have been above a three, on a five-point scale, have been between three and four. And we help organizations determine a matrix that'll say, all right, because you should be completely proficient as an accountant within three to four years, and we know that five he's been here five years, he should be at least at the midpoint given his performance and his years to proficiency in the job. So that tells us where somebody should be in the range. Now, if John is at the minimum of the grade, that means you have to make a pay adjustment if you want to move him where he belongs to alleviate what we call pay compression as new people come in. So if John's at the minimum and he's been with the organization five years and you bring Sue in and she's brand new and they're making just about the same, that's called pay compression. So John should be moving along the range and Sue should start at the minimum. Okay. And what about a company that has been operating for a while and they want to look at their pay and determine whether or not there's any bias in their compensation model, whether that's gender bias or racial bias or anything like that? So, yeah, so we would recommend they do what's called a pay equity study. And the pay equity study is um, very scientific. Um, we, we use an organization called DCI Consultants, um, and they really help us with getting that set correctly by doing things called the Fisher test and a different cohort testing. And that then tells us if you have an issue or a challenge with that. We're seeing a rise in pay equity studies, just given our, our environment and what's happening in society these days. So When somebody does those studies... How often are you seeing the need to go back and make adjustments? You know, it's not as often as you think, honestly, Um, because if you think about it, you know, women and let's just say just like women versus men, you know, women in the have been in the the, uh, business for, for a long time. Right. And they've have they've had a voice now and they will be the first ones to tell you, hey, I'm not making the same amount as my buddy, my cohort here. And he's making more than me. And I know that because we're talking, remember there's transparency now, uh, or lack of transparency, I should say. And those adjustments sort of happen by themselves. When you do a study like this, the adjustments are typically, you know, because somebody's been there longer, because there was a merger or an acquisition and that was an acquired, you know, so it's, it doesn't, it's not as often as you think. So it's more structural in nature than it is biased in nature. M- most exactly. of the time. I mean, I'm sure that most of it. there are going to be exceptions. I mean, we've all read about them and, and seen them, but 
from what I hear you saying is it's it's not like every company out there is still dealing with this problem on a mass scale that we we have made progress. It, I I believe we absolutely have. Yes. Okay. And that's again not to let anyone off the hook that they shouldn't be checking these things and and making sure because Oh, absolutely it, they should. It is right. yeah. it, it can be easy to slip into some of this stuff if you're not paying attention to it. But And if you, if you do a study like that, another great communication tool, right? Just say, "Hey, we we hired an outside consultant. We did this pay equity study and we we're we're in great shape." And so we're very proud of that. We're very proud that we, you know, so that's always a good communication. So we talked about ranges. How often should an employer be adjusting somebody's compensation? You know, you hear that millennials are coming in. I mean, like air quotes, millennials, you know, everybody was complaining about them for a long time that, you know, they wanted to be promoted and get a raise within six months. And that caused some consternation for some people. But what do you see a best practice in terms of moving people up within those ranges? So first and foremost, you should be adjusting your salary ranges. So let's take the person out of that for just a second. So we recommend if you do a compensation study and you, you, you develop a salary structure or you update your current structure, that you should keep that updated. Meaning every year there's market data that'll say you should move your structure 2% and the merit pool should be 35 or 3% or whatever that is. So first and foremost, keep your structure updated. How often you adjust a person really is dependent upon your performance management plan. We believe most organizations should be high performance organizations and and not just, hey, you've been here another year, so we're going to give you an additional amount in your paycheck. It's really, it really should be based on, on performance. And we typically see that performance adjusted on an annual basis. Now, when you do a market study, are there going to be folks that are off that you that are that need what are called market adjustments? Absolutely. So that goes back to that pay compression challenge. You know, if you know John Smith has been there five years and he's making the same as Sue Smith and she's only been there a year, you need to make a market adjustment to John to move him further into the range. So that should be done every two to three years where you're looking at that pay compression challenge. So first and foremost, move the structure and secondly, move people based on performance and their years to proficiency. Got it. So we've been talking a lot about frontline workers or, or even some managers and leaders, but executive comp is kind of a, a different beast altogether. And it's a one that's been getting a lot of national attention. How should a company think about setting executive compensation? So again, first and foremost, set your executive comp strategy. So that's going to look different than your general workforce strategy. General workforce strategy is mix of pay might be base versus variable. You might anchor pay at the 50th percentile, variable slightly above. Executive comp is going to be a little more challenging in that it's a package. So you're looking at base pay, you're looking at short-term incentive, and then you're looking at long-term incentive. Short-term incentive meaning an annual payout, long-term incentive maybe being three to five-year payout. So, and those are the long-term incentive if you're privately held, it, it could be based on phantom stock or cash plans. Typically, our publicly traded clients, obviously, we use equity of some sort, stock or stock options. 
but that's a, the mix of that package is based short term and long term. And then you throw in perquisites. So the perquisites can be can vary by organization, and that could include a car allowance, you know, a computer, financial tax services, something of that nature that kind of adds just a little val- a little more value to the total direct compensation package. And are those like your standard compensation packages very market-based? Yeah. So the market, so when we talked earlier about published survey data, you can pull published survey data for your executives, but even our privately held clients will want to use something called a proxy analysis where it's pulling their publicly traded peers and looking at real time what their what their annual reports are saying for the the top five executives of the organization. So you would combine published survey data with proxy analysis, and then combine those two to say what's the what's the what should the package look like? And do you see where do you see that heading directionally in the market? Do you see it continuing to grow, or do you see it correcting and coming back down with all the pushback? Uh, in pay inequity between CEOs or other executives in the workforce? Yeah, I think I think executives are more conscious of the ratio between their pay and the general workforce pay. That CEO pay ratio has become very important. I, I think you're seeing, you know, during COVID, you saw lots of executives take temporary pay cuts to, to help kind of offset some of the expenses. I believe our client base has been very more, much more concerned about the perception of their pay than ten years ago. I really feel like it's it's there's been a a corner turned on this topic. So, which is great, which is really great, great to see. Do you see them putting that money back into the rest of the general population, or do you see them putting that into other investments in the business? Usually it goes right back to the employees. Okay. So they're looking at the, so I guess that I'll ask the question before making the assumption. Does a company generally take the entire executive and general compensation and figure out what that pool of money is going to be and then figure out how to split it up? Or is it done in a couple of different buckets? So when looking at the total payroll, of an organization, it includes the executives. It's it's all combined. And that's what we always say to our clients. Let's look at total payroll. In COVID, there were clients that said, we're going to struggle and we don't want to delay merit too much. So we're going to we're going to we're going to either take a temporary pay cut or not take a pay increase or delay our bonuses. And they put that money right back into helping give the employees merit adjustments and or their bonus pool setup. Got it. Yeah. Well, and I guess the thing to remember too, for like for me is that these companies are already operating with compensation programs. So there's already a pool of dollars allocated. You know, the, the hard thing to do, I guess, would be allocate more overall dollars to the overall pool. Do you see companies having those conversations and doing that? And like what, what triggers something like that? Most organizations are, you know, accruing a 3% pool year over year. They're accruing on a monthly basis. All the incentive plans are being accrued. They're managing the money very well. There's really 
very few clients of ours that we have to we have to take a step back and say, wait a minute, you didn't accrue that bonus. We need to go back and accrue that. So that very rarely, if any, if lately has ever happened. So um, so I think they're managing their money very well, and they know what their payroll increases are going to look like on a year over year basis. And again, this has kind of come full circle back to the incentive design because if you you know this is the the threshold of the EBITDA that you have to hit to keep the doors open, what do you need to add to that for the payouts moving forward? And they're accruing for those payouts. Okay. Well, this has been a, a great conversation, and I was excited to have you on, and and I wanted to wait a little bit because I didn't want it to seem like it was just doing a locked in commercial you know, me being a locked in person and bringing you on. But I do think there's so much value, especially when we talk about people business and how when we talk about the different dynamics that go into managing people, I mean, how you compensate people is such a big element of that, right? It's such a big part of work. So uh, I'm glad to be able to talk through some of this stuff. I know while we have worked together, I'm not the expert on it. So it's been fun to be able to ask you some of the ignorant questions that I've had. Just to sum it up, what are the biggest mistakes you see people making when it comes to building their compensation? I would say the top three biggest mistakes. Well, there are four. I think I think there's four total big mistakes. If you don't if you don't do these, I think you, you may see some trouble. One is developing that compensation philosophy and strategy. You need a roadmap. You can't just kind of put your finger out and say, this is where I think we should be. It should really be a formulated strategy. Two, they don't know where they compete against markets. So they need to identify how they compare against the market. Once they've identified where they want to be in the comp strategy, now how do you compare to that? Three is not developing a formulaic incentive plan and making it too discretionary where people don't know why they got additional money, you're not getting your bang for your buck. And then finally, number four would be communicate the plan. Once you've done all that work, make sure you communicate it effectively and continue to communicate on an ongoing basis. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I do have one final question, and this is one that has nothing to do with compensation, but it's one that I ask everybody just because I think it's interesting to get everybody's answer. So broadly speaking, what in your mind is the purpose of business? So, you know, I think the purpose of business is to collaborate and and it's the sale of, of services and trade. And without it, we wouldn't be a society that can purchase things and thrive. So that's how I see business as, as a, a necessary evil <laughs> in some cases, but a way to thrive and, and collaborate and make things work. And so I'll ask you one follow-up to that. What is the purpose of compensation within business? Well, you got to get paid. <laughs> I'll say it that succinctly. <laughs> if you're going to sustain a, a trade, a purchase of a sale of some sort um, to keep our community and our society moving, you've got to get paid and you've got to get paid correctly for the work you're doing, for your craft, for your for your trade. So to me, compensation is almost at the foundation of business, how someone is paid even before their medical benefits, how somebody is paid is how they buy their house and their bread and their milk and you know get their kids into colleges. So 
to me, it's at the foundation of business. Yeah. It's how, I mean, it's how our whole society gets greased and oiled, right? It keeps everything moving. Keeps everything moving. Yeah. Exactly. Well, wonderful. Mary, really appreciate you and your expertise today. Uh, thanks for coming on and sharing. Yeah. Thank you. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.